0: Amen, amen. Thank you, Ethan. Well, good morning, church. I hope you're doing well uh, today. We're excited to be here. If it's your first time, I want to say a special welcome uh, to you. If you don't know me, my name's Billy. I get the privilege to be one of the pastors here. It's a huge honor for me uh, to get to do that. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, if you have been here this year, uh, you have uh, successfully completed uh, the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And so today we'll be finishing up uh, our journey through those two letters, and uh, we have honestly learned a lot. It's been an incredible journey. Uh, you know, I remember thinking at the first of the year, golly, this is a lot to cover, and there's a lot of topics and a lot of different things that Paul addresses in. Uh, these two letters to the Corinthian church. And uh, it's been awesome to, to get to just learn about fighting sin and about unity in the church and spiritual gifts. And uh, honestly, uh, pretty much anything that you would deal with as the church. And so, you know, I get the comment a lot that, uh, man, we just need to return to the early church. And I think a lot of people say that, and that's a great statement, but a lot of people don't understand that the early church had a lot of issues too. And uh, where there are people, there will be issues. Uh, Where there are me and you, there will be issues because we uh, are in this wrestling match with sin for the rest of our lives. And so uh, we have learned a lot and I'm excited to finish up uh, today. So 2 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to start together uh, in uh, verse 1. Verse 1 says this, this will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him. In our dealing with you, and so again, you got to understand a little bit about the background. And so, if you're not familiar with it, I'm going to go through it one more time. This will be the last time ever, probably, uh, that you get to hear it. But you know, in Acts chapter 18, Paul planted the church in Corinth. He started it from the scratch, and so uh, it was there was nothing there. He went into Corinth, started sharing the gospel, faced a lot of persecution. Uh, was at the point where he's like, God, I don't think there's any open doors here. I'm ready to go to the next place. And God came to him in a vision and dream and said, no, Paul, you stay here. uh, And uh, there's many people in the city that are going to believe in my name. And so he stays, uh, leads a couple people to Jesus. I say a couple, a lot of people come to Christ and thus starts the church of Corinth. And so Paul is the founding pastor. He founded it. He led these people to Christ well what happens is after that paul transitions over to ephesus where he's helping another church gets started there. And he hears and gets a message from the church of Corinth that things aren't going well, that uh, there's some people that are stirring up division. Uh, There's also some some folks that are walking in sin. There's also some false teachers that have slipped in. So Paul says, all right, I'm just going to head back. So he goes back to Corinth to try to help them and and fix and and help them find solutions to their issues. Well, when he gets there, uh, he has what he calls his painful second visit. And so painful meaning it didn't go the way he wanted it to. Uh, they did not turn from their sin. Uh, they did not combat the false teachers and say, y'all need to leave. Uh, they didn't even stand up for Paul. And as the person who led them to Christ and founded the church and was their lead, was their pastor, uh, that really hurt Paul. And so he calls it his painful visit. Well, after that time, he goes back to Ephesus and ends up uh, later on sending Titus back to Corinth just to check in. Paul's heart never left Corinth. It was there pretty much. He could not Uh, get it off of his heart and mind that they were struggling and and they needed help. And so he sent Titus back to care for him. And so Titus went back. Well, Titus finds a a different report. Uh, Titus finds that the the letter that Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians, to them, Uh, They actually had started heeding his instruction and repenting of their sin and turning back to Christ. And so Titus uh, leaves and comes up to Troas and and Macedonia up north of uh, Corinth and finds Paul, lets him know. So Paul is at this point about to go to them for the third time. He's heard from Titus and he is cautiously optimistic that these people have turned back to Christ and they're doing good. And so he's excited uh, to a degree. But he also writes 2 Corinthians uh, out of a lot of the hurt and the emotional uh, just just toll that they had taken on his life. And so we've been able to see that uh, from start to bottom. And so Paul's biggest concern, as we talked about last week, is that he would go to Corinth for the third time and find them in the same place that they were uh, a couple years before when he was there the second time, which was unrepentant and not walking with the Lord. And so he told us last week that there were, there were discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorder, sexual sin, debauchery. All of that was going on in the church uh, in Corinth. And so now he's ready to give them some final warnings And as you can tell, Paul doesn't want to come and like haul them up and use the authority that God's given him as an apostle. He actually wants to come and rejoice with them that they've turned back uh, to God. But he does give them some final instructions and he's pretty firm. He says, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Now, I'm not sure what exactly I will not spare those means, uh, but it ain't good. Right. I mean, you just think about a father or a, a, a mom talking to their son or daughter and they say, hey, I showed a little grace on you the first time, uh, but this time I'm not going to spare you. Usually that that's not a good thing. Right. Many of us have heard that too many times, but it's uh, it's not a good thing. So anyway, he goes on verse five. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. So they're trying, again, to examine Paul as an apostle. Like, they're trying to test him to make sure he is, I mean, what do we see in verse uh, 3? Where he says, since you're demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. So they're demanding proof from Paul. But Paul turns it back around on them. And he says, I want you guys to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. To see if Christ is truly in you, because that was the trouble that was going on in Corinth is they were so quick to criticize Paul, but they were so slow to examine themselves. And here Paul's asking them to look inward, individually, look inward, to honestly evaluate themselves. And here, that's what Paul wants them to do is to look inward. Are you saved? Is Christ at work in you because you're sure not acting like it? is essentially what he's saying. And he says, "I passed the test." but do you pass the test? And so Paul's coming at them pretty strong here, and I think we can all benefit from receiving this challenge as well, right? And so we live in a a culture and a place in the Bible Belt where everyone assumes that they're in the faith because they go to church or their mom was a Christian or they went were baptized when they were little or they went to a camp and cried one time, you know? And so people just assume that they're a Christian in this. But I'm telling you, this is a very, very important question and challenge for each of us uh, to heed this morning. And so the question is, how do we test our faith? How do we examine our faith uh, to see if Christ is in us? And so Paul doesn't really get specific here, but context tells us what he's talking about. He's talking about unrepentant, Sin. So basically, what Paul's saying is that if our lives, like the Corinthians, are characterized by unrepentant sin, then it's a great indicator that we're not in Christ. Because the normal Christian, the biblical Christian, the Christian that has Christ in them, responds differently to sin. They don't allow it to just linger in their lives. They turn from it, And they turn back to Christ. It's not that the Christian doesn't have sin in their life. We all have sin in our life. But when God exposes that sin, how we respond to it is the determining factor of whether we are in Christ or not. And so Paul knows that when the Spirit of God lives in a person, sin affects them differently. It's a big deal. It grieves them, it robs them of their joy, and it takes their peace from them. 1 John 3, 6 would even go on to say it this way. No one who lives in Christ keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen God or known God. And 1 John's an incredible book, you know, I don't know if you know this, but John, the Gospel of John, John tells us was written to us so that we could know Christ, like, that's what he wants is this whole gospel is about you understanding that Jesus is who he says he is. Well, then he writes the letter of 1 John and he says, I've written these things to you so that you can know that you believe. So it's a, an assurance, biblical assurance in 1 John. And so I have to turn there to kind of give you uh, some, some, some of the truths that he points out. John actually gives us three specific tests Of genuine faith. If you want to know if you have genuine faith in Christ or not, John says you can give yourself three tests. Test number one is the truth test. Write this down. Genuine faith believes the truth about God and the truth about yourself, right? We see this in 1 John chapter 1 verse 6. John tells us, if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, then we lie and we do not practice the truth. First John chapter 1, verse 8, a couple of verses later, John says, if we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. First John 1 10, a couple of verses later, if we say we have not sinned, then we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. So very clearly, John says, if we're not aware that we're a sinner, then we have not received the truth. There's no way we are a genuine believer. But then First John 1, 9, listen to him. We also understand the gospel, that if we confess our sin, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So genuine faith understands the seriousness of, of sin, but it also accepts God's solution for that sin, that Jesus died as a propitiation for our sins, that he died in our place to make atonement, to, to, to cover our sins in Christ so that he could forgive us. That's number one. Do you believe the truth of the gospel, that you're a sinner and that Christ came as your Lord and your Savior? Test number two is the obedience test. So not only does genuine faith believe the truth about God and you, genuine faith obeys. Listen to what 1 John 2, verses four through six tells us. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. So test number two is that if we obey God, it is a great indicator that we have genuine faith because genuine faith obeys. And then test number three is the love test. Genuine faith loves. It loves others. It loves God. Listen to 1 John 2, 9 and 11. Whoever says that he is in the light, and yet hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So John gives us three tests, knowledge, obedience, and love. If we know we're sinners rescued by Jesus, And if this leads us to obey God and love other believers, then we can have assurance that we have genuine faith. And this is an incredible challenge for us because we live in a culture where everyone likes to assume that they're in the faith and no one likes to examine themselves. But in the scriptures, it gives us warrant and gives us warning over and over again. Paul, 1 John, all of the apostles say, no, 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 no. One of Satan's greatest tools is deceit. He loves to deceive people into thinking that they're a Christian when they're not a Christian. And so we have to honestly evaluate our lives the same way Paul's asking the Corinthians uh, to do. Verse seven, Paul goes on. He says, this is back to 2 Corinthians. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not so that people will see that we have stood the test So Paul's saying it's not about us, this is about you. But so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. I don't care what you think about me, I'm thinking about you. Verse eight, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer, listen to this, prayer reveals Paul's heart and his motivation. Our prayer is that you may be fully restored Other translations say you may be made complete or you may grow into maturity. Verse 10, this is why I write these things when I'm absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in the use of my authority as an apostle. The authority the Lord has given me for building you up, not tearing you down. And so you see Paul's heart so well here as a pastor. He's been so patient so loving, his motivation has been so pure towards the Corinthians who have not made it easy. Like they have been, if any group of people made Paul sit against the wall and just headbutt the wall over and over again, it would be the Corinthians. They have literally driven him absolutely nuts. But he has displayed God's grace so well in the life of the Corinthians. And he prays specifically. He says, listen, I'm not coming to tear you down. I'm coming to build you up. That's what I want to do. Even through the test. He's testing and asking them to examine their faith and a lot of people when somebody challenges them or steps on their toes and challenges them to grow or examine themselves receive that not as love but they receive it as harsh or man, he don't know me. What is he asking? But the the, the reality is when you're asking someone to examine their faith, you're doing it out of love. Because here's the reality. Is it better to examine your faith today with me, or is it better to examine your faith when you stand before God at the end? It's too late. And so now, out of grace, God's given us this ability to examine our faith. Paul says, I want them to be restored. I'm praying for their restoration. The Greek word for uh, restore is a a very big word in the Bible. When you hear the word restore, you should immediately think relationships. It means to put something back that has been uh, broken. It's also used when it comes to like repairing city walls, like city walls are broken, so let's restore them, or mending fishing nets, the fishing net is broken, so let's fix it. Uh, Resetting dislocated bones, that bone should not go that way, so let's restore it. And so when you hear the word restoration, you should think uh, relationship. Just think even in the gospel, because of sin, our relationship with God was broken. Right? And so our sin separates us from the one relationship we were created to live life in and walk in, which is a relationship with God. And what Christ came to do when he came to die on a cross was to restore our relationship back with God, to make a way so that you and I could be back in relationship uh, with God. And here's the thing, being dedicated to others as a Christian in ministry to serve others well means that we long for them to be restored. Like that's the motivation of Paul. That should be our motivation as Christians that we long for people to flourish. That what's broken in their lives would be made whole in Christ we long for them to be spiritually growing to take next steps towards God who has called them uh, to be more than what they are right now he wants them i mean paul wants them to be built up in love and maturity that their life would reflect christ and so he sees what they can't see in their life and leads them towards god and that's what the church that's what a pastoral ministry is all about is seeing what god sees and meeting people where they are and helping them get to where God wants them uh, to be. And again, this is truly remarkable. Like Paul, Paul had every reason to give up on the Corinthians. Like they gave him more than enough evidence, more than enough, uh, more than enough just criticism and ridicule and everything that would drive you and I crazy. They gave it to Paul, but he didn't give up on them. He never did. He saw in them what God wanted to do and what God could do in and through them, even when they couldn't see it. And he kept pressing in, and he kept pursuing them, and he kept leading them. So my question for you is, are you this type of person? Are you the type of person that doesn't give up on people? Like, are you the type of person uh, that, 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 stop, ha, that doesn't stop praying for people, even when they aggravate you, even when you feel like they're too far gone? Are you more about building people up or tearing people down? Like We live in a culture that loves to just crucify people when they do something wrong. But the church is a place for people to be built up. It's to find people in weakness. I mean, that's what Jesus says. It's a hospital for the sick. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. So when sick people, which we all are, walk into the church walls, this is a place to be encouraged and to be built up, to be honest about who we truly are and meet the gospel of Jesus Christ, which meets us in our brokenness and restores us to where God wants us to be. Verse 11, and then Paul ends this way. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. There's that word again. Encourage one another. Be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Look to your left, look to your right real quick for me. I want you to greet, I'm just joking with you guys, that, verse 13, just making sure you're still awake, all God's people here send their greetings, verse 14, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So again, we've journeyed through this whole letter, how would Paul end this letter, how does he get to the end of everything he's been through with the Corinthians? He leaves them with five commands, imperatives of what to do as a church. The first is rejoice. Paul wants the Corinthians to rejoice, to enjoy God. When he says the key word of rejoice is, is joy. And joy is different than happiness, right? Happiness is circumstantial. You get a big raise at work. Man, I'm happy. You know, you, you, uh, you, your, your child is successful. You're happy. You, you get a new car. You're happy. All of that has to do with circumstances. But joy is deeper than that. Joy comes from, from inside, joy is something that's beyond your circumstances. That's why you see Paul in jail, shipwrecked, in the worst situations of life, suffering, being persecuted. And he says, I rejoice. I rejoice. I rejoice because joy is something that Christ gives us that's beyond our circumstances. And Paul says this should be the church. We're a place that rejoices no matter what situation uh, that we're in. I was talking to to Dr. Connor, who has been over to to Ukraine right in in the past couple weeks. And Ukraine's obviously going through a lot of issues right now. I mean, pretty much the whole place is destroyed. But there's a group of Christians there that we partner with and Uh, One of the things that uh, the pastor had written back in a letter uh, that I was reading this week in the office was, hey, you know, things, things are pretty rough over here, but God's filled us with joy. I'm like, how do you, I mean, for him to even say like in the midst of all this, they're filled with joy is just such an encouraging thing. This is the church. This is what we are. No matter what happens, we've already won. We have God with us. Secondly, The command is strive for full restoration. So Paul wants the church to strive for restoration. Again, relational unity. What Paul saw when he went there on his second visit was absolute relational chaos. Nobody had each other's back. They didn't even have his back. Nobody was loving one another. Nobody had anybody's best interest at heart. There was no unity in the church. And when the gospel unifies people and we're unified under the fact that we're sinners in need of God's grace, relational unity happens very easily because there's a lot less judgment towards other people for being jacked up and a lot more of relatability to say, hey, I'm pretty jacked up too. Let's depend on the same Jesus and let's walk this thing out together. And that's what God wants to see in his church is a striving towards relational unity and gospel unity. Three, he says we need to encourage one another. The church should be a place of encouragement should be a place of encouragement, a place where lost people, a place where saved people that are struggling, a place where mature Christians can come in and leave encouraged, not depressed, not beat down, but should be encouraged through the word of God, through prayer, through relationships with other people. Then he says, be of one mind. This is spiritual unity. He wants them to to be unified under Christ as their Lord and Christ's purpose. That's what the purpose that, Ethan, we were praying about there does, is when we understand God's heart to make disciples of all nations, as a Christian, when we surrender our life to Christ, everything begins to strangely be unified around a mission. You know, a church that's about, uh, the biggest enemy of a church is selfishness. Right? Because when you have selfish ambitions and selfish desires and I have selfish desires, guess what doesn't happen? Unity. Because my selfish desires aren't the same as your selfish desires. And so how God solves that is we die to ourselves and we unify under one greater purpose, which is his purposes, which brings spiritual unity in the church. And then lastly, he says live in peace. Live in peace, which is incredible when you think about like there's, there's no peace in our lives greater than when we're walking in right standing with God. There's nothing like it. There's no amount of money that you can make in the world. No relationship that you can be in. No TV show that gives it. There's no peace like peace from God. It's supernatural and it surpasses all understanding is what Paul says. And so Paul's heart for them is that, but then he gives them a promise. What's the promise? This is the most incredible thing. And the God of love and peace will be with you. I want you to write this down. The ultimate characteristic, the ultimate defining mark of a healthy church is the presence of God. You want to know if you're, if, you're a, if you're the type of church that God wants. We've been talking about be the church all year. If we're the church that God wants us to be, we will be characterized by the presence of God. There is no greater compliment that someone can give our local church more than this. Hey, when I come there, I feel the presence of God. I experience the presence of God. I experience the presence of God through the people there. I experience the presence of God through the teaching there. I experience the presence of God when I'm in your small group. Like that's what the church is about, is the presence of God being tangible and displayed uh, through us. And what does a church look like where God is present among them, in the midst of them? Well, they're full of joy. Restoration is normal. They're constantly encouraging one another. They're fighting for unity. And there's a supernatural peace that characterizes them. And then Paul leaves with this blessing in verse 14, which is the only time in scripture that we see this type of blessing that, that brings in the whole Trinity. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So again, it just blows me away. Paul leaves the Corinthians, all the crap they've put him through, all the times they've kept him up at night. And what does he leave them with? A blessing. A blessing a blessing. It makes me think of Jesus. We bless even those that persecute us. What, a, what, a, what an incredible thing. These are the people that literally have revolted against him, slandered him, belittled him, didn't defend him, didn't have his back, followed after false teachers, rebuked his authority, flaunted their sins in front of him. These are the same people. And what, is, what does Paul do? He blesses them. He blesses them with grace, with love, with fellowship. What an incredible picture for him to do that. All right, so here's what I wanna do today. So that's our passage, incredible passage. There's a lot in there. But the thing that just continued to stick out to me over and over this week was this idea of testing yourself, examining yourself. So I wanna talk to you today about the most important test that you will ever take. The most important test that we will ever take as a person. And I don't think there's a more important conversation to have uh, in our culture today. In the Bible Belt, this would be the number one conversation that I would have with every person that believed that they were a Christian. And and there's and there's an important quality about this conversation that has to be in my heart and in your heart, and that's one honesty. When we're examining ourselves, when we're testing ourselves, it does no good to not be honest. I'll tell you this until the day I go home to Jesus, the number one prerequisite for God doing a work in your life is honesty about where you are. If you want God to work in your life, you gotta be honest about where you are. And I'm not talking about half honest. I'm talking about this is God, this is, God already knows. But for some reason, God will not work in our hearts until we come to the light and say, this is who I am, God. But the person that'll come to that light and say, Here, here's who I am and what's going on. For some reason, God steps towards that person and begins to do it, and I think it's because in our weakness, he is made strong. So what is the test of faith? That's what we gotta ask. This is the most important test that we'll ever take. So what does it look like? What is the test of faith? And I'm just bringing kind of the whole counsel of God's word around this idea of the test of faith. So number one, the test of faith is a test of belief. It's a test of belief. Paul in verse 5 says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, right? The faith, meaning there's not multiple faiths, there's one faith, and this faith is in the one true God. What do we believe? The faith, meaning what do we believe about Christ? What do we believe about salvation? Gospel doctrine is important. There's many people In our culture, in our lives, maybe even in this room, that when they think about their relationship with God and when they think about their salvation, this is their mindset. I know I've done some bad things, but I know I've also done some some good things. And when I stand before God, I think God's gonna see that I've done more good than I've done bad. And when it comes to the weight of their salvation and the weight of their relationship with Jesus, that's the metric that they're using. And that sounds great, but it's not in the Bible. And we have to understand the truth of the gospel is that we don't bring anything to our salvation except for sin. But the good news of Jesus is that God sent him to become sin on our behalf. So that righteousness, which is the issue in salvation, would be given to you and I through Christ. And so the person that doesn't believe that salvation comes only through Christ falls short of the test that Christ is in them. Even though they may feel and they may think 100% that they're a Christian, if they do not believe what Scripture teaches us about Christianity, that salvation comes by grace, it's a gift of God, through faith, which is resting the weight of my salvation upon Christ. And not by works that no man should boast, is what Paul says. And in a very real way, that's what Paul wants them to understand when he says the test of faith. If somebody's teaching you anything other than, than Christ, then it's gonna fall short. You see, that's the issue in Corinth. It wasn't that they didn't believe that they were Christians. Like they all thought they were Christians. It was the type of Christianity that they had bought into with these false teachers. They were okay with unrepentant sin. They didn't respect the apostle Paul. They they weren't submissive to the word of God. They were arrogant. They weren't open. They weren't listening to any correction. All of these things don't line up if they were in the faith. And this was causing Paul some issues. He was doubting their salvation. He was doubting that they were in the faith because uh, they they were characterized by worldliness and self-seeking and and, and just convenient Christianity. And to be honest, it wasn't just a huge issue in Corinth. This is a huge issue in our culture today as well. D.A. Carson, who's a New Testament scholar, uh, really said it better than I can. I want to read a quote from him. He says this, There are millions of professing believers in North America today who at some point entered into a shallow commitment to Christianity, but who, if pushed, would be forced to admit that they do not love holiness, they do do not pray, they do not hate sin, they do not walk humbly with God. They stand in the same danger as the Corinthians. And Paul's warning applies to them no less than to the Corinthian readers of this epistle. You see, the greatest issue facing Christianity today is what I like to call build-a-bear faith. And and many of y'all have done this. You've been in the mall. You know what a -a build-a-bear... How many of you guys have heard the term build-a-bear? I know you've heard me say it. So you go in the mall. There's this place called build-a-bear. You walk in, man, it's great. It's great. It's great because you can walk in and you can have the greatest teddy bear you've ever created. It'll say what you want it to say. It'll be the color that you want it to be. It'll have a name on it that you want. It'll be the size that you want it. I mean, it is better than Burger King. You can have it your way and they're going to charge you for it. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it's the perfect thing. But what's happened with Christianity in our culture is we've kind of done the same thing. Like we don't like the Christianity of the Bible and it confronts some things in our life that we don't want to be confronted. So what we do is we kind of say, ah, eh, I'm just going to change it up a little bit. You know, I, I know Jesus said this, but I, I, this sounds better to me. So if I don't believe that in scripture, then I'll just change it to, to say this, or I'll just ignore that part of God's word. And what happened in Corinth is the same thing. They were fitting Christianity to their liking. They were conforming Christ to themselves rather than conforming themselves to Christ. They were picking and choosing what they wanted to believe and what they wanted to follow and what was a big deal to God and what wasn't a big deal to God. And I'd like to say this is only an issue in Corinth, but we know it's an issue with us too. And so the question I have for you this morning is, are you in the faith? Like, it, are, are you surrendered to Christ? Is God's word the ultimate authority in your life? Or do you just like Christ being your savior? And then whatever you want to change about your life, you'll take to Jesus. But whatever you want to keep, you'll just say, oh, God, I don't really care that much about that. Or I'll just hide this or do that. That's not the, the, the teaching that we receive in God's word. It's not biblical Christianity. So firstly, the test of faith is a test of belief. Secondly, it's a test of Christ in you. It's a test of the spirit of God, the indwelling spirit of God in you. Verse five, Paul says it this way. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test and he's not in you. So how do we know if we're in the faith? Well, one way we know it is if the spirit of God is in us. So then the question becomes, how do we know if the spirit of God is in us? And that is a incredible, incredible question. So I want to give you some scriptures on that and talk about it a little bit. Romans chapter eight, verse 16 tells us that the spirit of God, when it comes into our life, testifies to us that we are a child of God. All right. So there. When we become a Christian, the Bible teaches when we surrender our life to Christ, not a half-in, half-out surrender, but when we see Christ for who he is and what he's done and we say, yes, I want to follow Jesus, I want to surrender my life, I'm turning from sin and I'm trusting in Christ, I'm trusting that he's done everything necessary for my salvation and I'm surrendering my life to him and I want to worship him. What happens is the Bible says in that moment, Christ fills us with the Holy Spirit. And this spirit does some things in us, right? And some of them are hard to explain, but some of them are clear in in, in scripture, right? For a lot of people, the only dealing they have with the Holy Spirit is it makes you do crazy things, right? But the spirit of God does a lot more than just crazy things. The spirit of God confirms to us that we are a child of God. And so there's an inward assurance when the Spirit of God is in you that you are God's child. Galatians chapter 4, Galatians 4 verses 4 through 6 teach us that God's Spirit in us cries out, Abba, Father. And this is a relational term, right? So it means when, when the Spirit of God dwells in our lives, when it lives in us, there's something in us that longs for a relationship with the Father. And we want to spend time with Him. We want to. It's just when when a person gets saved, and one of the things that I've figured out 15 years into this is that when God truly saves somebody, they want to read their Bible. Like they want to know Him. Like I don't have to beat them over the head and say, "Hey, you want to read the Bible? Oh, you hadn't read it for six months, eight months, two years, man. Like what the heck is going on?" No, when the Spirit of God lives in us, it brings a deep desire to know the Father. We want to know God. We want to pray. We want to spend time with him because we realize that's what we were created for. There's a longing in us. Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel says it this way, 11, 19, and 20. He'll say it again in 36, 26, 27 in the the book of Ezekiel. But listen to what he says. He says, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then... They will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. Ezekiel says that when the Spirit of God comes in us, it brings new desires, it brings a new purpose, and it brings a new identity. When the Spirit of God comes in us, it's like for the first time our eyes have opened and we see the world the way God sees it. Like we're created by him and for him and I wanna live for his purposes. And this old heart of stone that just wanted to live for me now has some competition. And it's the spirit of God which is more powerful than our flesh that lives in us that drives us to live out God's purpose and identity in our life. Galatians chapter five, verses 16 and 17. Paul explains to us that there now is a battle that will happen in our life. And so he talks about the flesh versus the spirit. I want you to listen to it. Paul says, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Listen, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. And so Paul says, when the spirit of God comes in us, it comes inside of a fleshly body gotta understand this, every person in this room has a flesh, which is your old man or your old woman that desires to live for yourself, do what you wanna do, when you wanna do it, rebel against God, no authority in your life, I can do what I want, when I want, that's the sin fleshly desire that each of us have. But when we get saved, God drops, I mean, an absolute game changer inside of that fleshly body, which is himself, his desires, his heart, his vision, All of that stuff comes with the Holy Spirit inside of us. And so when that happens, these two things begin to war against one another. And the best way I know how to explain it, I used to watch Tom and Jerry a lot, and and Tom and Jerry at certain points, an angel would show up on one shoulder and a devil would show up on the other, right? And so what you would see is Tom would be in this wrestling match of, hey, I know this is the right thing to do. And the angel would be like, yeah, Tom, uh, serve him. Do this or, you know, do something right. And then on the other hand, it's like, no, you do what you want to do. Kill him, take it, you know, take it from him, whatever. And so he'd be in this war of just wrestling back and forth And in the Christian faith, it's the same way. You have the spirit of God with the desires of God in you that are trying to just stir you towards the things of God, but you have this flesh that's like, no, do what you want to do. This is going to make you happy. Do this. And so this war is going on, and a lot of people where we live see that as I'm not saved. But I'm here to tell you, if that war is waging in your life, then that means the spirit of God is in you. And if the Spirit of God is in you, you belong to Christ. And so that should be assurance. And then we see Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where uh, Luke tells us this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we see when the Spirit of God comes in us, we are committed to God's mission. We are empowered, and we want to witness for Christ throughout the world. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it means there's a desire in us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. When we're praying with what Ethan just led us through, there's something in you that's like, yes, I want to get the gospel to these people who have never heard it. Thirdly, we see that the test of faith is a test of fruit, a test of fruit, F-R-U-I-T. Fruit, what you produce. Fruit is an outward evidence of an inward reality. That's how the Bible talks about it. And I think God understands that we're all not as smart as we think we are. And so what he does is he gives us some outward evidence in our life so that we can't trick ourselves into thinking that we're somebody we're not. That make sense? And so he doesn't do fake, and he allows fruit in our life uh, to teach us. Because here's the reality about fruit. We can lie to ourselves all we want to, but fruit don't lie. And when you track the fruit, it always points to the situation that's really going on in your heart. You can't make an apple tree produce oranges, but an apple tree will produce oranges. the same way in the Christian faith. If the Spirit of God is in you, you will produce the fruit of the Spirit. It, It may be a struggle, and that thing may be wrestling some of us down more than others, but at the end of the day, we will produce the fruit of the Spirit. But if the Spirit's not in us, we will produce the fruit of the flesh. I want you to listen to how Paul talks about this in Galatians 5, 19 through 23. Paul says this. The acts, you can say acts or fruit, same difference. The acts of the flesh are obvious. So when we're living without the Holy Spirit in our life. This is what our lives are characterized by. Hence, what's going on in Corinth. Listen to what he says. He gives us a list. The, fle- the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and against such these things, there is no law. And so when you begin to look at your life and take an honest assessment of your life, is your life more characterized by the flesh or by the Spirit? And if we want to know if we're in the faith, one of the best ways to know if genuine faith exists in our life is through examining our flesh. And then fourth and lastly, the test of faith is a test of love. It's a test of love. And it's important to test this way because I think it's, it's important. Not only is it a, a test, can you test, as First John said, through a love for others. I think, you know, genuine faith always produces love for others. But I, I think when you put your finger on genuine faith in your life, you have to track it down to love for God. Like, ultimately, it all gets there. But here's the thing about us and the culture that we live in. A, a lot of us and a lot of people in our culture love to show love for God publicly. You know what I mean? And if we lived anywhere else in the world, it wouldn't be an issue because love for God in other places will get you killed. But here, love for God, there's a social acceptance with it that comes. and. Some of it is maybe you grew up in a Christian home and you learned the ways of Christ and that's great, but ultimately when you get into your private devotion to God and track all the way down to the deepest level of your devotion to God in that private time when it's just you and God, either there's love for God there or there's not. And I say this, and I'm not trying to tear people down in this room, but I really, really want us as a church, me included, with you guys, to evaluate this in our life. Like, when, if you brought me into your private life with God, like when you're by yourself, nobody's looking, you're not faking it for anybody, it's just you and nobody else, is there a genuine love for God in your heart? Like, do you love him? Like, do you want to live for him? Do you understand what he's done for you? What he's given you? Is there a a gratitude, a gratefulness for the greatest gift that we could ever have? Forgiveness of sin and salvation and connectedness into this life that he created us to live. So right where you are, I I just want you to bow your head. Every person in this room. And listen, nobody can answer this question except for you and God. And here's the reality. God already knows So honestly, it's just us being willing to be honest and evaluating our hearts and saying, God, is there love for me in you or is there not? And for some of us in this room, if we track through this test that I've just taken us through, the test of faith, man, it's confirmed more than anything else in your life has ever confirmed that you love God that you're a Christian that you're in the faith. And man, it's renewing the joy of your salvation. And that's my prayer is that today there would be a revival in your heart of man, I am saved and I'm with God. But for some of us in this room when we hold ourselves up in light of this examination and this test, the greatest test we'll ever take in our life. It doesn't bring peace in our hearts. It actually brings unrest. And we don't know. We don't know if we're a Christian. We don't know if we're in the faith. It surely doesn't sound like when I evaluate my life with love for God and fruit in my life and the, the evidence that the Spirit of God produces in my life, there, there's, there's nothing there. And today, what I'm telling you is God's given you an opportunity for today to be the day of salvation. And listen, the greatest hindrance to today being the day of salvation for you is you thinking about the person to the right or to the left of you. What are they gonna think if God's trying to save me today, but they've thought I've been saved for my whole life? And here's what I want you to know. Just like Paul told the Corinthians, it doesn't matter what they think. What matters is that when you stand before God, that you're genuine and that you know that you know that you're a Christian. So I wanna pray for you. Father, here's my prayer. God, I pray for the person in this room right now, God, that's just wrestling. God, you're working on their heart right now. They're convicted, they know it, and God, you're stirring them up, and they know today's the day of salvation. God, I pray in this moment you would give them courage, courage to step into what you've done for them already. God, it's not about them working for it or doing something, it's about them coming to place with the reality that you love them just the way they are, broken, jacked up, and in need of a Savior, God. And you've come, and you've been that. You've placed their sin on you, and you've taken the weight of that so that today they could experience freedom in you. So, Lord, I pray today, God, that you would save them. And, God, today would be a day of salvation in their life. If you're in this room today and you say, Billy, that's me. I just prayed that prayer, and I know it's me. I want you to lift your hand. I want you to be bold. I want to know. I want to know. We want to help you. We want to walk beside you. Even if nobody else does, we do. Is that anybody in this room? I'll give you a second. Anybody in here? So, Father, thank you for your grace. God, thank you for your mercy. God, I pray as we leave today, we would leave affirmed and confirmed. God, that you love us, that your grace is in us. God, that you would equip us Lord, in the place that we live, God, we have to be able to know how to help someone realize if they're genuinely saved or not. So Lord, I pray that we would go out as an army and God, you would give us the courage to have conversations with people and God, you would use us to further your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here. We'll see you back next week.